Well, good morning. Excited and humbled to stand behind uh, this historic pulpit here this morning, and it's uh, it's not a privilege that I take lightly. Uh, being in this pulpit means uh, more to me than you'll ever know. Uh, men like uh, Dr. H. A. Ironside, who was a pastor here back in the 30s and 40s, um, I cut my teeth basically on his writings uh, back in my early 20s when I began to really study the Bible in depth. I've been greatly blessed by a Warren Wiersbe, who was a, a pastor here a few decades ago, and also by uh, your pastor emeritus, Dr. Erwin Lutzer. Uh, they blessed and, and enriched my life and ministry greatly, and um, I'm indebted to, to this pulpit uh, and to these men that God has used so greatly. So it's a, a wonderful honor and a privilege to be here today. Uh, my wife Cheryl was already introduced earlier. It's wonderful to have her here. And our friends Don and Damaris Nobler are here with us as well from Dallas. We met them at Dallas Seminary uh, about 30 years ago, and uh, they've been a great blessing to us uh, through the years, and they've hosted us here this weekend. So God bless you all. Thank you so much for uh, your blessing in our lives. Let's open the Bible together. If you'll take your Bible with me and uh, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, um, I just really want to focus in on one verse. We, we've had the scripture reading already uh, here this morning, but uh, I want to bring a message I, I've titled, Your Final Exam. And uh, let me just read verse 10 one more time for us. I'm reading from the New American Standard. Uh, the context here in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul has been talking about life after death. He's been talking about what we call the intermediate state, that time between the time when a person dies and when uh, the Lord comes. He's been talking about the new body uh, that we will receive when the Lord returns. But then he, he, he turns from there to the topic of our standing before the Lord, and he says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for the deeds done in the body according to what he's done, whether good or bad. May the Lord write his eternal word on our hearts this morning. Back in 1899, uh, Buffalo Bill's Wild West show performed in Berlin, Germany. The German people, like other people in Europe, uh, turned out by the thousands to see this Wild West show, this novelty. And one of the main attractions at the show was Annie Oakley. Uh, Annie Oakley was known as Little Sure Shot. Uh, she was an incredible, uh, had an incredible ability at shooting a rifle and a pistol. She did all kinds of sharp shooting tricks. Uh, these included uh, people throwing a, a playing card into the air, and uh, she would uh, shoot it in half with a pistol. Uh, you could throw a coin 27 feet away from her in the air and she could shoot it out of the air. Uh, she'd uh, shoot an apple over her shoulder using a mirror at some distance away. But one particular demonstration in her routine was to shoot the ashes off of a lit cigar of a person holding it in their mouth. Now she would always ask for a volunteer from the crowd, but typically no one volunteered. So her husband, Frank Butler, was in the crowd and he was all, would always volunteer if nobody else did. By the way, I bet he was very kind to his wife all the time. <laughs> but when she was in Berlin, they were there in 1899, it was very interesting when she asked for a volunteer, the newly crowned German emperor, Kaiser Wilhelm II, volunteered. Of course, this made her nervous, and uh, she gave him this large cigar. He lit it until there were some ashes on the end. She took her 45 pistol nervously and shot the ashes off of the end of the cigar. And of course, everyone uh, cheered at this great feat. But 15 years later, Kaiser Wilhelm plunged the world into the First World War, causing Annie Oakley to wonder how events might have unfolded in the early 1900s had she unfortunately missed and hit the Kaiser. Now what is known is that Annie Oakley did send the Kaiser a letter after the start of World War I asking for the opportunity to take another shot. 
Now, she never received a reply back from him, but I've thought about that story quite a bit, and it teaches us a very important lesson in life, and that is you only get one shot at life. There aren't any do-overs. There aren't any dress rehearsals at life. So we have to make sure we take dead aim with our life and make sure that we make our one shot at life count for Jesus Christ. Because the day is coming for all of us, according to God's word, when we will stand before the Lord to give an account of our lives, to give an account of what we did with that one shot uh, that God has given us at life. One of these days, all of us will face a final examination. It's It's an event the Bible calls the judgment seat of Christ. And in our time here this morning, what I want to do is answer five important questions about this coming event. Again, you can see those in your outline this morning. Uh, the participants, that is, who will be there, uh, the place, where, where will it occur, uh, the period, when's it going to happen, uh, the purpose of it, uh, why will we appear before the judgment seat, and then finally, and very practically, the preparation. How do we get ready uh, for this final exam? So let's begin by looking at the participants or who will be involved in this final examination. Now you notice in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10, Paul says, for we must all appear. So you'll notice the Apostle Paul here includes himself. And I believe this judgment, this judgment seat of Christ is for believers only. When Paul says we, I think he includes uh, the the believing, uh, believers, the church age, if you will. Now, this is not the same as the great white throne judgment that you find in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, where where the lost will be judged there for their sins and abandoned by God and separated from God for all of eternity. Now, this is a judgment for believers, and it's my understanding that this is only for church-age believers. Now, you say, well, what's the church age? Well, the church age started on the day of Pentecost, and it will end at the rapture when the Lord comes. Um, I don't think uh, Old Testament saints will be resurrected till the end of the tribulation at the second coming of Christ. I would uh, base that on uh, passages like Daniel chapter 12, where Old Testament saints are resurrected at the time of the tribulation. So I think this judgment will only be for church-age believers. In uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it says the dead in Christ will rise first, and those who are alive and remain will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Old Testament saints are believers, but they weren't in Christ through the baptizing work of the Holy Spirit. So I think only church-age believers will be resurrected. Those who are alive will be raptured and we will appear before this judgment seat of Christ. Now notice here, he says, we must all appear. Notice the word must, it's not optional. It's an obligation or a necessity. We can't opt out of this as a believer. And notice he says, we must all appear. So it's every church age believer who will appear before this judgment seat of Christ. And notice here that he moves from the plural, we must all appear, to the singular later in the verse, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. It's going to be an individual judgment. Someone has said that at the judgment seat of Christ, we must all go past in single file. As Romans 14.10 says, for we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God so that each one of us will give an account of himself to God. I mean, think of that. One writer said it like this years ago, we're going to all have to sing solo before God. Every one of us will make an appearance there. Those are the participants. 
Now, the next thing we see here is the place. Where is this judgment or this final exam going to occur? It calls it here in in 2 Corinthians 5.10, the judgment seat of Christ. Now, that word judgment seat, or those two words in English, are one word in Greek, the word bema. It's the bema of Christ. And a bema means a step or a raised platform that required steps to ascend, kind of like the, the platform here at the front of the church. It was a, a tribunal. And every Greek and, and uh, uh, Roman city, every major city, had a, a bema in the marketplace. In a Roman city, the, the marketplace is called the Forum. Uh, in uh, Greek, it's called an agora. And uh, you can see a picture here of the Corinthian agora. So. The Corinthian believers were familiar with the idea of a Bema seat or a judgment seat. Corinth had one. Um, in the next slide that's there, you can see that um, this is up close of it. You can see the acro Corinth in the background. This is the Bema. And according to Acts 18.12, Paul actually stood in front of this uh, Bema there in Corinth before a man uh, named Gallio. So when Paul brings up the idea here that every one of us must stand before the judgment seat or the Bema seat of Christ, this is something they saw uh, often there in the marketplace in their city. Now it's called the, the judgment seat of Christ because Jesus Christ will be the judge. He will be the inspector. He will be the examiner and the evaluator at this judgment. Remember John 5.22, Jesus said, For not even the Father judges anyone, but He's given all judgment to the Son. So each one of us will be judged at the Bema seat in heaven by our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the third question concerning our final exam is the period. When is this going to take place? Now, again, if you have your Bible, if you'll turn back just a few pages to 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 5, This passage tells us when this judgment will take place. Notice 1 Corinthians 4, 5 says, Therefore do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. So the period of this, I believe, it will take place after the rapture in heaven, after the Lord comes. Now, I hold to the pre-trib rapture view. If some of you want to go through part of the tribulation and leave later, that's fine. But I hold to the pre-trib rapture position. And this chart uh, shows that. Um, the rapture, I believe, will take place at any moment. I believe it could happen at any time. It's an event that is certain that it will happen, but it's uncertain when it will happen. It can happen at any moment. We'll be caught up. Those who've died will be resurrected, receive their new bodies. Those who are alive will be raptured uh, to go and to be with the Lord. And then when we get to heaven, I believe the first order of business will be this judgment seat of Christ or this final exam. I believe that the tribulation period will be raging down on the earth. And then you can see at the, 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 the other part of the chart, the other end, we're going to have the marriage of the Lamb where we are married uh, the, to our bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let me just say this. If you hold a different view of the timing of the rapture, that's fine. All I'm saying this morning is whenever the Lord comes, I believe that's when this event's going to take place. But I place the the, the coming of Christ, the rapture, before the tribulation. So I think it's going to be going on in heaven uh, during that period of time. Jesus said in Revelation 22, verse 12, Behold, I'm coming quickly. My reward is with me to give to every man according to what he's done. 
So Jesus is coming, and when he comes, that first order of business after his coming will be this final examination for his people. So we've seen the participants here. It's every church-age believer. Uh, the place is the, the Bema seat of Christ in heaven. Uh, the period of this is right after the Lord's coming, right after the rapture. And that brings us to the fourth key question here, and that is the purpose of this judgment. Why will there be a judgment seat? Now, before we look at what the purpose is, let me make sure that we all understand what the purpose is not. The judgment seat or the Bema seat of Christ is not to determine if we get into heaven. The issue with the judgment seat is not where you will spend eternity, but it's how you will spend eternity. The issue with the judgment seat is not our salvation, but the issue there will be our rewards. It's very important that we keep these two lines of truth distinct. The salvation is based on Christ's work for us. Our rewards are based on our works for Christ after we become a believer and we trust in Him. So salvation is by belief in Christ. Our rewards are based on our behavior in Christ. I remember reading years ago at Dallas Seminary where I, where I attended and where I, where I still have the privilege to teach now, that in, in the registrar's office, there was a sign that said, salvation is by grace, graduation is by works. And I like that. I mean, if you're going to go to a school, you need to know that, right? Graduation is by works. It's the same thing. Our, our rewards will be based upon the works that we've done after we've received the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, a verse I'm sure that you all know well, tells us that our salvation is not in any way based on our works. It tells us, for by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. It's not of works, lest anyone should boast. But then it does go on to say, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. So we're saved by God's grace through faith unto good works. And of course, if you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Jesus Christ apart from your own works, that's what you need to do this morning. Look, we're not saved by our doing. We're saved by His dying. We're not saved by, by our merit. We're saved by His mercy and His mercy alone. So if you've never accepted that pardon that Jesus Christ purchased for you when He died on the cross, I pray that you'll do that this morning. You'll cast aside any thought of your own merit or your own works. You'll come simply and cling to Jesus Christ as your Savior from sin. So if the purpose of this judgment, of this final exam, is not to determine if we get into heaven, then what is this judgment all about? What's the purpose of our final exam? Notice it says here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10 that each one may be recompensed for his deeds, that we can receive a reward now, the whole idea of rewards bothers some people, and, and they, they kind of recoil against this idea that God is going to be a rewarder. But, you know, the Bible is clear from beginning to end that our God is a rewarding God. I mean, in uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, it says, God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. So the purpose of this Bema seat is for each one of us as believers to be reviewed and to be rewarded for our service and our ministry as a believer to be evaluated, for each of us to receive a recompense or to receive a reward. I like the way one person put it. He said it like this, at, the, at this final exam, the small will be great, the forgotten will be remembered, the unnoticed will be crowned, and the faithful will be honored. 
I hope that's a great encouragement to all of us here this morning. Now, the rub in this verse, though, for me, is found at the end of it when he says that we can be recompensed for the deeds done in the body according to what he's done, whether good or bad. Now, some translations say good or evil. There's a Greek word that does mean bad in the sense of evil, but that's not the word that's used here. Uh, The word that's used here, the Greek word phallos, carries more the idea of something that is uh, worthless or bad in the sense of worthless. And so I don't think here it's looking at evil or sinful activities, but things that are bad in the sense of being worthless. If we turn back a few pages again to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, I think there's a passage there that might help us with this a little bit. It's kind of a a parallel text in some ways. In uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, down in uh, verse 9, Paul says, For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. So he looks at the church at Corinth as a building. And he says, According to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building upon it. But let each man be careful how he builds upon it, for no man can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds upon the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it's to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he's built upon it remains, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as through fire." Now, I think what Paul's talking about here in the immediate context is the church at Corinth. On his second missionary journey, Paul was in Corinth for about a year and a half teaching the Word of God, and the foundation of the church was laid. And Paul is saying now it's left to others to build upon that foundation at the church at Corinth. But I think we can make an application of this from what was being done at the church of Corinth to our individual lives as well that the foundation in our lives is laid, which is Jesus Christ, then we come along in our lives and build the superstructure on top of that foundation. And he says we can choose gold, silver, precious stones. That would be the good in 2 Corinthians 5.10. And then he says wood, hay, and straw, that would be the bad or the non-rewardable over in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10. And it tells us here, the worthless will all go up in smoke. Now, we won't be burned up as a believer, but the worthless works will be burned up. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. I remember J. Vernon McGee years ago said, at the judgment seat, many of us will smell like we were bought at a fire sale. Now, I hope that's not true of any of us, but we may see a lot of what we've done in this life go up in smoke. But notice it says here, but we will make it through. Now, one thing I think that's important is I don't believe our sins will be an issue at the judgment seat of Christ. Jesus Christ paid for our sins in full at the cross. Romans 8.1 says there's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So there's no condemnation for our sins, but I believe there will be a valuation for our service. Now you say, well, if these bad things here, though, aren't sin, then what are they? Here's the best way I've heard it described. They're bad, good works. Now you say, well, what in the world does that mean? 
What makes them bad or worthless, I think, is that they're things that were done with the wrong motive. So they're good things in themselves, but done for self-glory. So they're not worthy of reward, that is, they're unrewardable. And that's a sobering thought because God not only knows what we do, but He knows why we do it. God knows the motive behind it. In fact, here in 2 Corinthians 5.10, when it says we must all appear before the judgment seat, the word means to be, the word means to, to be made manifest, to be disclosed or to be made known. Remember a few moments ago, we read 1 Corinthians 4.5. When the Lord comes, He's going to bring to light the things hidden in darkness, and He's going to disclose the motives of men's hearts. That's the most sobering part, I believe, of this final exam. God not only knows what we do, but He knows why we do it. There's a story I read years ago about a group of children in a, a cafeteria at a Catholic elementary school. They were lined up there for lunch, and at the head of the table there was a large pile of apples. And a nun had made a sign and posted it there that said, take only one apple and remember God is watching. Now moving along further in the lunch line, at the end there was a big pile of cookies. And one of the students had written a note there that said, take all the cookies you want, God's watching the apples. <laughs> now we all know that God's watching the cookies and the apples, right? But God knows everything. And here's the sobering truth for you and for me. God's omniscient eye not only sees to us, but God sees through us. I mean, He knows our motives. He knows why we do what we do. Now, you might be thinking then, well, I probably won't get anything then at the judgment seat of Christ if that's true. Uh, will every believer receive a reward at the judgment seat? Because Honestly, this morning before God, I can say at my best, I can't think of anything that I do without some of Mark Hitchcock in it. Nothing that I do with 100% pure motives. Maybe every once in a while I do something when I don't have time to think about it. But, but any, any reward that I get and that you get ultimately will be purely uh, as a result of the grace of God in our lives. But I used to teach the idea that, that some people won't get any reward but remember those words again at the end of 1 Corinthians 4, 5, where it says, each man's praise will come to him from God. It's in the singular there. Each man's praise will come to him from God. I believe that God will find something in the life of every believer to reward. Now you say, well, what will our rewards be? We don't have time to go into this in detail, but let me just mention three things really quickly. One is the Lord will praise us. I mean, think of how we love being praised as a child by our father or someone we respect. Think what it will be for the Lord to praise us. Each man's praise will come to him from God. God will praise us. One writer says it like this, what an incredible sentence. God will praise each one of them, not the best of them, nor a few of them, nor the achievers among them, but God will praise each one of them. And that includes you and it includes me. And stop and think about that for a moment. The Lord of the ages, the creator of the universe, the shepherd of the stars will praise and reward me someday at the judgment seat of Christ. He's going to praise us. There's also going to be great privilege. I think one of the rewards will be a greater opportunity and capacity to glorify the Lord. 
In Daniel 12, 3, it says, Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. And those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So one of the rewards will be a greater capacity within us to glorify and to manifest the magnificence of God. It's kind of like the old illustration. I'm sure many of you have heard this. You have like a chandelier and you may have a bulb in there that's a 75-watt bulb and maybe a 40-watt bulb and maybe a 25-watt bulb. They're all shining, but some of the bulbs have a greater capacity uh, to shine forth the light. And that's an illustration, I think, in some ways of what it will be like in heaven. Uh, Warren Wiersbe has a great statement about this. He says, every cup will be full in heaven, but some cups will be larger than others. So no one's going to have a cup that's not full. We'll all have a full cup. Every cup will be full, but some cups will be larger than others. So we'll have the opportunity, a greater capacity to glorify God. And then the final thing is positions of authority and reigning with Christ. It's it's emphasized over and over again in Scripture that during the millennial kingdom and on into eternity, we will reign with Christ. So we'll have greater places, I believe, of responsibility and service in that kingdom. In Luke 19, Jesus said some will rule five cities. Some will rule over ten cities. We're going to reign with him. And I don't know exactly what that will be like. The Bible tells us we're going to judge the angels. But we'll have greater positions of authority in the coming kingdom and through all eternity based on how we've lived in this life. One of my old friends years ago says this is training time for reigning time. And I like that. We're training now uh, to reign with him. But look, the key idea in all that we've said is this. The person you are today will determine the rewards you receive tomorrow. Your life here and now and my life here and now will impact our life for all eternity. Now, we've answered these four questions so far. Who's going to be at this judgment? All church-age believers. Where is it going to be? It's going to be at the, the, the Bema seat of Christ in heaven. When's it going to happen? After the Lord comes. Why is it going to take place? So that our lives can be reviewed and rewarded by our Lord Jesus Christ. But there's one final issue, and I want to spend the rest of our time on this, and this is the preparation or how we get ready for this final exam. Now, we all know that tests are a part of life, and let's pretend like it's a Friday afternoon in a classroom, and the teacher tells everyone in the class there's going to be an exam on Monday. But then she says, let me give you the questions that will be on the test. Now, if you're any kind of a student at all, immediately you begin to listen, get your pencil and your paper out to write down the test questions, right? Everyone begins to pay close attention. And I believe in the Word of God in the same way God has scheduled a final exam for every believer in the future. It's not going to be a pop quiz. It shouldn't take us by surprise. It's on God's schedule. But God has graciously given us the test questions ahead of time. And I have about uh, 15 things in Scripture that I've gone through and I've found that will be evaluated, reviewed, and rewarded. Now, mercifully, I'm just going to give you about six of those here this morning. But I think that will be plenty for us uh, to get started in uh, our preparation for this final exam. But let's begin. Let me just point out six of these, and they're kind of representative of what the others are like. The first one is how we treat other believers. Hebrews 6.10 says, For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you've shown toward his name in ministering and still ministering to the saints. It says God is not going to forget. 
how you've ministered to the people of God and their needs. And so one of the things that will be reviewed is how we treated the Lord's people. Now, I know you've heard the old rhyme before, you know, to live above with saints we love, or yes, that will be glory, and to live below with the saints we know, that's a different story, right? But sometimes in the church, in the body of Christ, we can really treat people in in, in a a very shabby way. Uh, God watches how we treat each other within the body of Christ. And one of the test questions will be, how have we treated other believers within the body of Christ? It's tragic what what happens in churches sometimes, the fighting and the quarreling, uh, the the ungodly, unchristian activity that takes place. But God's watching. And one of the things he's going to look for in our lives and reward us for is how we've treated other believers. A second thing is how we employ our God-given talents, abilities, and opportunities. You all know the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. Luke 19, you have the parable of the pounds or the minas where a nobleman leaves and goes away on a long trip and, and, and leaves his possessions there for his servants to invest. So God has given us talents and opportunities and abilities to, to invest and to maximize on his behalf. And God expects a return when he comes back. Someday he's coming back to see what kind of a return he will receive on his investment. And you may say, well, you know, I don't have a lot of talents or a lot of abilities or opportunities. I love what Hudson Taylor said. He said, a little thing is a little thing, but faithfulness in a little thing is a big thing. God is looking for faithfulness with the talents and the abilities and the opportunities he's given us. We need to maximize them in this time that God has given us, in this one shot that we have. A third question that's going to be on our final exam, this hits a little close to home, how we use our money how we use our money. 1 Timothy 6.18 says, we're to be generous, ready to share, storing up for ourselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, sending it on ahead. Jesus said, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy nor where thieves break in and steal. It's the old saying, you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. We're to lay up treasure in heaven, and God is going to examine our life someday and evaluate what we did with the resources he's given to us. In his book, uh, The Law of Rewards, Randy Alcorn says this, every day the person whose treasure is on earth is headed away from his treasure. Every day the person whose treasure is in heaven is headed toward his treasure. Whoever spends his life heading away from his treasure has reason to despair. Whoever spends his life headed toward his treasure has reason to rejoice. Then he asks the sobering question, where's your treasure? Are you heading toward it or away from it? Do you have reason to despair or reason to rejoice? It's a great question for all of us. We're either heading toward our treasure or we're heading away from our treasure. We can either despair or we can rejoice based on that. Another thing that the Lord is going to judge us for or that he's going to examine at this final examination is how effectively we control our body, how effectively we control our fleshly appetites. In 1 Corinthians 9.27, the old King James Version, Paul says, but I buffet my body and make it my slave. Now the word there is not buffet my body, it's buffet my body. I do a lot of buffeting of my body, but it's I buffet my body. And the word buffet there literally means to, to, to punch under the eye until it's black and blue. So it's a boxing term. And so Paul says, I buffet my body and I make it my slave. 
I bring it into submission, lest having preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. Now disqualified, that word doesn't mean he's afraid he's going to lose his salvation. It's the Greek word adakamos, which was used back in the games of that day when someone was disqualified from receiving a reward. So Paul says, if I fail to, to harness my fleshly desires, I can be disqualified from receiving reward in the future. And you look at our culture today that's so saturated with, with immorality. And what an application this is for all of us here to buffet our body in every way we can to make it our slave and bring it into submission. So that someday when we stand before the Lord, we won't be disqualified. Another thing that's going to be on the final exam is how humble we are. Matthew 18, 4, Jesus said, Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. If you want to be great and rewarded and, and have a, the capacity to glorify God in heaven someday, then we need to be humble here on this earth. The greatest person in the kingdom of heaven will be the person who's the least and the lowest here on this earth. It's like Martin Luther said. We said, God made everything. God made the world out of nothing. And as long as we are nothing, God can make something out of us. We want God to make something out of our lives. We need to be nothing. That's what God works with. And someday on our final exam, the Lord is going to examine our life and evaluate our lives to see if we were humble with the gifts he gave to us. One final thing I'll mention here, and that is how faithful we are in our vocation or our work. Let me read uh, Colossians chapter 3, uh, verse 22 to 25. Colossians 3, verse 22. Paul says, Slaves in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with the sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. So he's saying here, whatever God has given your hand to do, whatever your work is, we're to do it heartily for the Lord, and someday the Lord will reward us for what we've done in our vocation and our work here on this earth. One of my favorite stories in this light comes from the life of H.A. Ironside. Again, the man I mentioned earlier that was the pastor here for 18 years at this church um, who had such a profound impact and has had on my life. But H.A. Ironside, early in his life, worked in a shoe repair shop for a, a cobbler named Dan McKay. And the job for young Harry Ironside at the time was the mundane, monotonous job of taking wet pieces of leather that would be the soles of the shoes and pounding them for hours to pound all the water out of them so they would harden so that they would form a, a good soul that would last a long time. That was a very boring job that he did, but Ironside heard there was a, a shoe repairman down the street who didn't pound the water out of the soles of the shoes. And he wondered why he spent all this time in this mundane, monotonous task. And then he tells this story. He says, one day I ventured inside the store of this competitor, something I had been warned never to do. Timidly, I said, I notice you put the soles on while they're still wet. Are they just as good as if they were pounded? The man gave me a wicked leer and said, they come back all the quicker this way, my boy. Feeling I'd learned something, I related the instance to my boss and suggested I was perhaps wasting time drying out the leather so carefully. 
Then Dan McKay stopped his work and opened his Bible to the passage that says, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And he said, Harry, I don't cobble shoes for the money I get from my customers. I'm doing this for the glory of God. I expect to see every shoe I've ever repaired in a big pile at the judgment seat of Christ. And I don't want the Lord to say to me that day, Dan, this was a poor job. You didn't do your best here. I want him to be able to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Then he went on to explain that just as some men are called to preach, he was called to fix shoes and that he only did this and that as he did this well, would his testimony count for God. It was a lesson I've never been able to forget, Ironside says. Often when I've been tempted to carelessness and to slipshod effort, I've thought of dear devoted Dan McKay, and it stirred me to seek to do all that I can for him who died to redeem me. Now, I don't know what your vocation or occupation here is today, but if Dan McKay expected to see that pile of shoes at the judgment seat, If you're an attorney, maybe it'll be a a pile of cases that you've worked on. Or if you're a a physician, piles of records for the the patients that you've cared for. If you're work in a factory or you're a mechanic, it may be engines or parts that you've worked on. If you're a a mother at home taking care of small children, it may be a, a pile of dirty dishes or a pile of dirty clothes or maybe even dirty diapers at the judgment seat of Christ. How did we do the job that God gave our hand to do? Did we did it? Did we do it to glorify God and to glorify Him alone? Look, the final exam is coming for each and every one of us. We cannot opt out of it. And those are at least some of the main questions that are going to be on the exam. So my prayer this morning is you'll leave here and you'll say, I want to go get ready and I want to start cramming for the test so that I can get an A. Now, there may be some of you here this morning and you're thinking, look, what if I've blown it? I'm older now and and what if I've wasted most of the years in my life? I've wasted this one shot at life that God has given to me. What should I do this morning? Well, I don't want you to leave here this morning in despair. God is gracious in giving rewards. Begin to serve Him today. It's never too late. Give Him what's left of your life, and He will reward you beyond your wildest dreams. Don't give up. Remember the parable in Matthew 20? Remember the workers went out at 6 in the morning, and 9 in the morning, noon, 3 in the afternoon. There was a group that went out at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. They only worked for an hour. And they got the same amount as all the other workers. There's a lot of truths in that parable, but one of the great truths is God is gracious in giving rewards. The one-hour workers got the same amount as the all-day workers. Stay in the race and keep going and don't give up. Back in 1959, the great movie Ben-Hur was released, the epic movie starring Charlton Heston as Judah Ben-Hur. The director was William Wyler. Uh, Charlton Heston wanted to be able to drive a chariot in the great chariot race. It's obviously the climax to the movie. He didn't want to have to use a stunt double. He wanted to actually be in the race himself. So he was sent away to get chariot driving lessons. Now, I have no idea where you do that, but he went to get lessons driving a, a chariot with four horses abreast. And so he goes and takes these chariot lessons for uh Uh, uh, four weeks' time, and he comes back, and the director, uh, William Wyler, asked him, he said, well, Heston, how did the chariot uh, lessons go? He said, well, they went pretty well. He says, I I pretty much learned how to drive a chariot, but he says, I don't think there's any way that I can win the race. William Wyler looked at him and winked, and he says, don't worry about it, Heston. You just stay in the race. I'll make sure you win. (laughs) 
I love that. God is the director. And if we will stay in the race and stay committed to him and keep going, God will make sure we win. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for those beautiful words of Scripture that tell us that someday we will stand in your presence blameless with great joy. And I thank you that our salvation is based not on what we do, but on what Christ has done. That it's based solely on that finished work of the Lord Jesus. We will stand there blameless someday because he took the blame for us. But Father, I thank you that we have the unspeakable privilege to serve you with our lives, to maximize the investment that you placed in our hands. I pray the ambition and the aim of each person here will be to please you, that we'll take dead aim with our lives, that we won't waste that one shot at life that you've given to us, but that we use that one shot to bring glory to your great name because you are worthy. Oh, Father, help us to live today in light of that day as we await the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. All God's people said, Amen. Amen.